All right, church, our college students are coming back this week. Uh, we've got six different college campuses in our city, if you didn't know that. And so we're, we're going to be having students starting this week coming back to our church. And, and here's what we believe about college students. that College, it's, it's only four years of your life, but it's four of the most important and fundamental and foundational seasons in a person's life. Some of you look back at college and go, that was a great time for me growing spiritually. Many of us look back at college and go, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. I don't want to talk about that on Judgment Day. Uh, many of you feel that way about your college experience. And here's what we know also, that the college campus is like cement. It hardens quickly, and the decisions that a college student makes, this is proven, a decision that a college student makes in the first six weeks of college will determine the direction and quality of the rest of their college experience. And so there's two things that we want to do uh, with college students early on. And if you're here and you're a college student, m most don't come to the 9 o'clock service. Um, but if you are here, uh, we've got a college lunch two weeks from today on September 8th after service uh, in the building next door. Uh, we don't only uh, want to feed your soul, we'd like to feed your body as well, okay? Um, and secondly, we have a college retreat you just heard about on the video. That's going to be September 13th through the 15th, and, uh, and that's going to be both with Winston-Salem State, Wake Forest, and really if there's any other campuses or college students who want to go as well, and that's going to be in Boone and a great time to get together with everyone. Uh, finally, uh, I want to tell you briefly just about our weekender. You'll hear more about this at the end of our service, but we had another weekender uh, this past week weekend, and it filled up, and in fact, our September weekender filled up. Uh, last Sunday, the first uh, Sunday, we really kind of pushed it, announced it. It completely filled up. You guys are acting, uh, you treat our weekender like Hamilton tickets, okay? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, so we have added another weekender, October 18th through the 20th. Uh, we've already had some people. You went online early. You found it. Uh, you signed up for it. But October 18th through the 20th, we have a weekender. Uh, so if you want to sign up, you can do that online, outside. Uh, you can do that on our website. You can do that at the Welcome Tent. Pray with me. Uh, Lord, I thank you for all of our college students. There, there are thousands of college students who arrived in Winston-Salem over the last week. Uh, they are going to different campuses. They are coming back. Some are coming for their first year, freshman year. Some are coming for their final year. They're going to be seniors. I pray that um, we could be a church that comes alongside college students in those four years of their lives that are so important. And, and we could challenge them with the gospel. We could encourage them. We could equip them to do ministry and mission on their campus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Has somebody ever prayed for you before, walked up to you and said, um, you look like you need prayer? This happens to me every once in a while. Someone's like, you look like you need prayer. I'm like, thanks, I think. <laughs> right? Uh, this happened recently. So, you know, we do four services on Sunday. And uh, in between the third and the fourth service, which in between our 4 p.m. and our 5.45 is normally when I, I feel the most tired. And, and a very godly woman came up to me after the 4 o'clock service the other week, and she just said, can I pray for you? And it was really powerful, and she just, and I said, yeah, and she just prayed for me and just asked God to help me and strengthen me, and, and, and if you've ever been in a position like that, it could be something little, it could be something major, maybe you got in the hospital, somebody prayed for you. It's a very humbling, it's a very empowering uh, situation to be in. Uh, I don't know if you've ever prayed for somebody in, in, in a key situation. I have an opportunity oftentimes to visit people in the hospital, uh, both at Novant and at Wake, and, and I walk in there, and, and, and I never know exactly what's going to go on. I don't know all these, what happened and what the diagnosis is going to be, and and so really, I, I, one of the first things that I always do after I just, and I try to stay there for a very short amount of time and not bother anyone, but I, I kind of come in and, and I'll normally say, what's going on? And then I normally say, can I pray for you? Uh, because when you, when you pray for somebody, you, you're really just humbling yourself. You go, I don't have the resources, but I know who, do, who does. Uh, I don't know what to say, but I know who to talk to. I, I don't know how to comfort you, but I know the God of all comfort, so maybe we can, maybe I can just pray for you. I mean, I had a lady recently, was in my office, was telling me the story of how she found out about our church. And she said, it was, she was this older lady, and she said to me, she said, well, I went, and I won't say where, but she was going somewhere to get some physical help. 
And she said, I went to this place, and she said, and I started telling the guy who was helping me that I was having some problems, and he said, can I pray for you? And she looked at me, and, she, and this lady's not a Christian, and she looked at me, and she said, I don't think he was supposed to do that. <laughs> she goes, I don't think he was supposed to do that, but I'm really glad he did that. And she said, well, he prayed for me, and, and it showed me that his faith was genuine, and that he was authentic, and that he was interested, and that, and that God might be real, and, that, and, and it just began that conversation. And today, if you want to know what is the big idea of today's sermon, it's really simple, right? We keep things simple here. It doesn't mean it's easy. It means it's simple. The big idea in the sermon today from the life of Jesus, from the ministry of Jesus, from the prayer of Jesus is simply this, that we are to pray for people and we are to pray with people. How different would your life be if you started to pray for people? Now, here's a convicting question for all of us. If God answered all your prayers from this last week, what would change? And some of you are like, the putt would have gone in, okay? <laughs> Uh, Amazon would have had my size, okay? Those are okay prayers, but those are not the type of prayer, right? It's kind of humbling, right? You're like, if God answered every prayer that I prayed this last week, if only my life is more comfortable and more convenient, then maybe I need to begin to pray some different things. And so we need to begin to pray for the right things, and what we're gonna see in the life of Jesus is that um, prayer also reveals your priorities, right? So when you start to pray, you're actually, you're telling on yourself. You're like, you know, or or you're, You know, it's the same thing. Questions and prayers reveal the heart. So the questions you're asking, if you're being honest, and the prayers you're praying are revealing your heart. Now, some of you, you're going to have to say, I've got to start praying for certain people. Now, listen, the shortest distance between two people is prayer. So your, your kid could be away at school. You could be dating somebody long distance. But if you decide to pray for that person, there's a connection, there's a closeness there. So you need to pray for people. You need to pray with people. I was talking, uh, one young lady in our church was telling me the story. She said uh, uh, that a couple years ago, she was living with a roommate, and she said they had just decided at night that they were going to open up their Bible, they were going to choose a psalm, they were going to read it, and they were going to pray together. She said it didn't take long. They did it most nights. She said, but what it did was I, I got closer to God, and, and I got closer to my roommate. That's what, that's what, by the way, praying does. It often brings you closer to people. Um, you want to be praying with your kids, now, there's a lot of things that my wife and I have not done well with our kids, and I try to talk about those publicly too. Um, but one thing that we've done decently well is we've tried to, from day one, to pray for our children. To, to, to not just pray for them, to pray with them. To say, hey, you know, I know nighttime's the hardest, and bedtime's the hardest, but, but you know, to crawl in bed and to cuddle up and to, to, to ask how we can pray and to pray over them and to bless them is an important thing. Uh, many spouses never pray together. Do you know why? Because spiritual intimacy and soul intimacy is the deepest intimacy. It's deeper than sexual intimacy. This is why people all the time experience sexual intimacy with people they don't know, or they don't know very well, or they knew for one night. But the deepest type of intimacy is soul intimacy. The deepest type of intimacy is spiritual intimacy, and that intimacy is expressed probably most potently in prayer. And so what I wanna do with our, our time today is I want to look at the priorities of Jesus in praying, because yeah, we talked about this last week, but, but Christians in America uh, not only do we pray very short prayers, and that's okay because Jesus' prayer is only six minutes long, um, but, but not only do we, do we pray short prayers, but we tend to pray about little things. Guess what? When, when they do, I, I recently read up a study on, on what do Christians in America pray for? And the number one thing they pray for is events and what's happening next. And you can think about this, right? Because whenever somebody, I mean, you ever get that feeling when someone says, how can I pray for you? You're like, uh, uh. What's going on in my life, right? That's what you tend to think of. Like, do I have an event coming up? And it could be a birthday party. It could be, it could be uh, a church event. But, but they say that almost half of what people pray for is their calendar and their to-do list. 
But then they say, guess what the next biggest thing people pray for? Guess what the best, biggest thing you pray for? Well, well, what happens whenever you say, does anyone have any prayer requests? What do you think? You think, do I know anybody who's sick or anybody who's in the hospital? That 23% of what Christians pray, apart, pray about are body parts. <laughs> Sally's stomach and Timmy's tummy, right? And Adam's abdomen, okay? We, we, we're constant, and that's okay. But that's what, that's, I mean, that's what everybody prays for. That's what every non-Christian prays for. That's what everybody says, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying about you. And again, we, we can pray about those things, but that, that, that's a large part of it. Here's a, a number, a, a, another highly prayed over thing. 6% of people pray for unspoken prayer requests, whatever that means, okay? I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't know what an unspoken prayer request is. I guess it's something you don't tell what it is, but you just say you need prayer. So that means that close to 80% of what Christians in America are praying for has very little to nothing to do with Jesus' mission, message, or ministry. And so what I want us to do with our time today is I want us to see how Jesus prayed, what Jesus prayed about, so that we can learn from his prayers the priorities of the church. So with that said, open up to John 17, and we're going to be spending our time in verses 6 through 19 today. So John 17, if you weren't here the, uh, last week, this is Jesus' most, um, probably second most famous prayer, but it is his longest prayer. It is his final prayer as he's praying with and for his disciples. And it starts like this, verse six. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Here's what you need to know. Maybe you're in this room, you're not a Christian, uh, you're seeking, you're skeptic, you're asking questions. Here's what you need to know. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Do you see that? I manifested your name. That God is not a force, he has a face. That God is not a random power, he has a personality. And if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at the life of Jesus. If you want to know how does he relate to people, how did he relate to sinners, how does he relate to religious people, you begin to look at that. So Jesus understood this. I manifested your name in the world. And then he says this in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the first thing he's going to pray for them is he's going to pray that they obey. The first thing that you should pray over your life is pray that you would obey. Or, or the way he says it in there, that you would keep the word. But then he says something very, very deep, very, very theological, and looking back to eternity past. You see what he says in verse 6? You read these verses, and let's just look at it again because they're complex, and they're, they're, they're very deep and heavy. He says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. So he's saying, God, they belong to you before they believed in me. God, there were people and they have always in eternity past belonged to you before they believed in me. And then he says this, you gave to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, just says it again, just so we're so clear, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now this is not to be confusing, but to be comforting. This, what this means is that your salvation started a long time, if you're a Christian, your salvation started long before you prayed a prayer. Long before you asked Christ into your heart. Long before you surrendered your life. It means that at the deepest level, it had to do in the mind and heart of God, and this is to humble us. This means that your salvation, in one sense, had nothing to do with anything that you've done. And this is completely the opposite of everything else that you experience in your life, right? Everything else in your life is about earning. You have to be a certain good looking to get asked out. You have to have certain grades to get into school. 
You have to have certain competencies to get hired. And what this is saying, and it's such a deep idea, is that God loved you way before you were lovable. And actually what God does, the reason that you're going to keep his word and obey his word is not so that you'll belong to God, but because you already do. And what he's saying here is also God does not belong to you, you belong to him. See, people today act like God belongs to, well, I like to think about God this way. Well, that's nice. <laughs> I'm glad that you would like to domesticate God, but guess what? Uh, he didn't make, or you didn't, let me try to say this. Uh, you didn't make him in your image, he made you in his image. You didn't create him, he created you. And so he begins to go on. And he says this in verse seven. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words. Now this is interesting. Uh, in verse six, Jesus says, I give them your word. In verse seven, he says words. In the Gospel of John, when it says word, it's talking about the main message of Christianity. That's what we call the gospel here. The good news, uh, the blazing center, the big E on the I chart. Okay, if, there's, if you could summarize everything in one sentence, it's that Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's the main message, that's the word. But then he says, for I, verse eight, for I have given them the words. So there's a main message, there's a main story, and then there are other specifics, and there are smaller stories. And he's saying that you should know both. He says this, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have, here's what you do with God's word, they receive them. And they have come to know in truth, and that's going to be a big concept in John 17, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. What Jesus is saying is, if you are going to obey, you need to know God's word. And you can see how central the word of God is. I won't get into this too much because we talked about it last week. But here's what you need to know about the Bible. The Bible is not man's account about God. That's how religious people view the Bible. The Bible is man's account, written down account about God. No, the Bible is God's written down account about his pursuit of man. And that's a very different thing. John Stott, he died several years ago, but he was a very well-known, very influential Christian of the 20th century. And John Stott made a very interesting observation. He said that as he would, he would travel and he would speak all over the world, and he said somewhere in the 70s or 80s, he said, I started to travel around, and what I noticed is that all universities had changed their theology departments to religion departments. You will not find a theology department at any mainstream university in America anymore. Because what theology is, theology says, I would like to learn about God. I would like to know what he's like and what he desires and what he demands of my life. And people don't want to study that anymore. Because it means that I have to change. And so instead what they study is religion. And what religion is, they, they actually fit it under, if you go, what category is religion at, at universities? It's, it's found under anthropology. Because what religion is, is it's, it's studying what man maybe is speculating about God. See, what Christians believe is that the Bible is not speculation about God, but revelation from God. And he's saying, I want you to keep this word. Well, how do we do it? He gives it right in the text. Look at verse eight. Everything that I'm teaching, it arises right out of scripture. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. It's like, well, how do you obey God? You put yourself in situations where you can be placed in position to hear God's word. You have in your life a quiet time or a devotional time in which you can position yourself to receive God's word. You make decisions about your calendar way in advance to be a part of worship regularly. 
so that you can sit under the teaching of God's word, not just listen to a podcast, not just YouTube something, not just read a book, but make sure my family is sitting next to me as we're hearing the word of God so that we can then talk about it afterwards. He says you receive it, then you believe it. Now, what does it mean to believe it? It means that you believe what it says, especially when it contradicts culture. That the number one authority in people's lives is either their self, themselves, their experience of life. You you see an 18-year-old step on the college campus and they are so assured of what they believe and then you tell the 18-year-old, you were 12 six years ago. (laughs) And they go, I was 12 six years ago. Um, And what, what that means is that what do you know? Your brain weighs three pounds. You're going to make every decision possible on your limited life experience in your three pound fallen brain. And then culture, which continually changes, right? So nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. Some of you are going, this is relevant. (laughs) Right? Because that's not what it's about. That I believe, you don't know you believe the Bible until it confronts you and contradicts you. And then you go, can I edit, do I edit the Bible or do I change my life? And you need to know that there are entire denominations, there are entire seminaries, there are entire divinity schools that have decided it's too hard to change my life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to edit the Bible. And if you are going to obey, you need to keep God's word. And so that's what he's calling us to. This is why, by the way, here we focus on what we call obedience-based discipleship, not knowledge-based discipleship. Knowledge-based discipleship is, hey, read this book and know these things, and then come back to tell me that you know this book and know these things. Uh, And then what it leads to is big heads, small hearts, small hands. Obedience-based discipleship is um, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you obey, and actually, this is very deep, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, that you actually only know it once you've obeyed it. There's so much of the Bible that you don't even know truly at like an experiential, real level until you've obeyed it. And it doesn't see, like when you look from a distance, you're like, well, why would I ever want to be generous? Even though God's generous and the Bible tells me to be generous and one of the main words that's connected to money and possessions is generosity, but I don't want to be. Why? Because the culture says, you know, get all you can, keep it for yourself. But then you, you ever talk to somebody who for the first time they step out and they're generous? It's just such an incredible experience. And then they, they go, I, I kind of got the bug. I kind of want to be more generous. I mean, we, we had a situation in our church, a guy, he told me this story. He said, um, he said, I was excited about what God was doing here. He said, and I was so passionate. God was working in my heart. He said, he said, I went online. He said, and I gave to Two Cities Church. He said, only problem was a week later, I got a call from California saying, wrong Two Cities Church. <laughs> All right? Now that's generosity. This guy is so generous, he gives to the wrong church. There's only three Two Cities Churches in the nation, okay? One in California, one in Minnesota, one here. Um, he gave to the one in California. So they called him, sir, this is California Two Cities Church. Uh, you're giving to the wrong church. Um, but generosity changes your heart. Um, you know, and I can give you many, many examples. Uh, people think, oh, you know, um, the, the, what the Bible says about sexuality, it's, it's outdated and it's archaic until uh, somebody actually tries that and says, actually, maybe that's the way God has designed for a fruitful and successful marriage. And, and here's, what, here's the honest truth. If you don't learn that God's word is true by obedience, you will learn that God's word is true by disobedience. Oh, and that's painful. And we all had that situation. Where we go, no, no, I'm actually smarter than God. And so then you try to do something and, and you realize that you really, whenever you break God's law, really what it does is it, break God, it breaks God's heart and breaks you. 
And you realize when those two things happen, wow, actually obedience is what's best for me. So the first thing Jesus says is, I pray that you would obey. Secondly, I pray that you would endure. I pray that you would make it. I pray that you would have a long view of your life. I pray that you would be walking with Jesus Christ till you die. I pray that decades from now, when you have grandbabies, you're still walking with Christ. And he prays that. Here's what he says in verse 9. I am praying for them. Them is every future believer, the current believer and the future believer. And then he says something that might be confusing. He goes, I'm not praying for the world. You're like, what? He goes, uh, let me say it again. I'm, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Let me explain what this means. It means at least two things. Number one, Jesus Christ wants a sharp distinction between the world and the church. That's taught throughout, that the church is a called out people on mission. That's the definition of the church. They are called out of sin and slavery and selfishness and bondage and ignorance and rebellion and folly. They are called out of that and they're called into mission. But here's even the more important reason, because the best thing for a lost world is a strong church. So when you look at a city, you pray for the church in that city. Any city you're passionate about, you could vaguely pray for that city. You could say, I pray for Austin, Texas, but the better thing to say is I pray for the church in Austin, Texas. And I pray that that church would be faithful to the gospel. And I pray that that church would preach the gospel. And I pray that that church would be salty and bright. See, what every lost sphere in industry, business, medicine, ed education, what they need is Christians. You need to look at that industry and you, you want to pray for Wake Hospital? You pray for the Christians there. That's what you do. You want to pray for Wake Forest? Don't vaguely pray for Wake Forest. You pray for the Christians on that campus. Would the professors be serious if they're for Christ? Would the students, and there's probably a small minority and remnant like there is everywhere, and would they step up and would they share Christ? Because that's the only hope of Wake Forest University for Christ. And so that's what Jesus is praying. And he's praying that we would endure long-term. I want you to continue to read verse 10. All mine are yours. This is this Trinitarian language. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And then he says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. So he's asking to protect them. Which you have given me, that they may be one, even as I, even as we are one, and then he says this, while I was with them, he means physically, I kept them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And then he uses, I've guarded them. This is all the language of protection. By the way, not protection from suffering, not protection from tragedy and trauma and trials. Protection from sin, protection from Satan, protection from apostasy and rebellion. Here's what he says. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. I want to talk about, this is so relevant because every once in a while people ask this question, can I lose my salvation? Because in that, in that he prays, he goes, I've guarded and I've kept everybody except the son of destruction, which is Judas. So Jesus is saying, um, all of the 11 disciples are going to make it. Judas is not going to make it. He's the son of destruction. I'm not praying for him. He's not being guarded. And people ask this question, can I lose my salvation? Which isn't a great question. The better question is, can Jesus lose a Christian? And the answer is no. But, but you might ask it this way, if I become a Christian, will I always be a Christian? 
Same question, but just a little different way to ask it. If I become a Christian, will I always be a Christian? The answer is yes, but let me just, we're going to do just a little bit, slow down, just do a little bit of theology real quick because it's helpful. And these will be some helpful language and categories. Um, the Bible talks about three things. It talks about perseverance, preservation, and assurance. Um, perseverance is my work that I must do. I still do it by the grace of God, but you can't understand the Bible if you don't understand perseverance. And when Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, when the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All of the warning passages in Hebrews that say, if you continue in the faith. You can't just read those and go, well, once saved, always saved. Close the Bible, you know? It's like, well, no, those verses are in there and they have significance. They, they're warnings. Uh, but then there's uh, what's called preservation. Preservation is God's work. And there's, those are the verses that you write on cards and put in your wallet and put on bumper stickers, right? That's the, uh, he will begin a good work, and he who began a good work in me will carry it out to completion. That's the John 10, I'm in his hand, no one will ever take me out of his hand. And by the way, perseverance and preservation are taught right next to each other in scripture. So Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13 says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your work. For it is God who works in you, both to will and do, that's God's work. And so what happens, though, this is so important, when there's perseverance and there's preservation, there's a third word, assurance, confidence. That when you're persevering, when you're saying no to sin, when there's not perfection but progression, not perfection but direction, when that's in your life and, and, and you see yourself incrementally and progressively growing more and more like Christ, you can go, God's really working in me, I'm really a Christian. Which is why this is so important. You cannot lose your salvation but you can lose your assurance of salvation. And some of you, you've been there. You're like, that was actually your college years. <laughs> or that was uh, during a vacation. You did some things, or you went some places, or you looked at some things, and you actually looked at some things for a long time, and you didn't tell anyone, and then you never really repented of it. And, then you got, and, and all of a sudden, you looked at yourself, and it, you, you woke up at 3 in the morning, and you said, am I really a Christian? Because can Christians really do these types of things? That happens. And, and that's why you have to understand that you cannot lose your salvation, but you can live in such a way that you go, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Your heart can become hardened. But, but here's also what he's saying is, you can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. And that's the story of Judas. And I want to talk about Judas for just a few minutes because God does this often. He will give us a serious and severe warning through an extreme example. And that would be Judas. I mean, think about Judas. We won't go too much into him, but um, <clears throat> Judas tells us that you can be around, you can walk with God's people and not walk with God. That's Judas. He spent three to three and a half years with the Lord Jesus and with 11 disciples, all of whom were real Christians. Uh, it, it tells us that you can be baptized. You can get baptized and not be a Christian. That's why we don't believe baptism saves. Baptism is the sign, seal, and symbol that I've trusted in Christ. You can fake it. That's why we ask all the questions when we baptize somebody. Tell me your testimony. Do you believe? What's the gospel? Has your life changed? But people lie. So he, he was baptized that he's not a Christian. It gets scarier. The more you read it, you're like, okay, and he was in church leadership. He was an elder. Um, from certain, one, I can't remember what gospel it was. One of the gospels tells us he was in charge of the money. It's like, well, who, who, who do you give the money to? The guy everyone trusts. So he's in church leadership. He's been baptized. He's in Christian community. He, he received good Bible teaching. He put himself in the right church with the right Bible teaching, okay? The right kids ministry. And he was lost. And so it's a great warning to us 
of the dangers. Now listen, the Bible says that Christ, some Christians wander and some Christians run. But that every true Christian will come back home. See, and this is why this is important because, and I, I wrestled with whether to talk about this publicly, but it, because it was a public story, I, I'm gonna address it publicly. But you know, a guy named Joshua Harris, um, who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and he wrote a couple other books. And I actually, I mean, I don't know Josh, I don't have a cell phone number or anything like that, but, but, I, but I had met Josh on a handful of accounts and always had great interactions with him. And uh, I you know, looked up to him, read almost every book that he wrote. Well, you know, whatever it was, about a month ago, he's completely renounced his faith in Christ. And this guy at one point was pastoring the largest sovereign grace church in the nation, which is a very respected kind of denomination and everything. And so, um, and we, we talked about it. I was so bothered by this that basically during our staff meeting, I spent about a third of our staff meeting that we talked to the staff about it. Because when you look at somebody like that, he's, he's getting divorced, he's leaving his family, he's, he's, I don't know what else he's doing, but, but he's completely renounced his faith in Christ. He's called it deconstructing it. And I told, I said to the staff, I said, there's four things. There's only four, I'm a category guy. I'm like, there's only four things that could be true. Number one, Christianity's not true. There's only four things that would explain this. And I don't believe that, obviously. But that could, that'd be one reason to explain what he did. I said, number two, he's lost his salvation. But the Bible clearly says that's not true. So that leaves only two options left. Either Josh Harris was never a believer, or he is wandering and running away, and God will eventually break him, and he'll bring him home. And I, of course, I hope it's that final option. And, and there's examples of that, right? If you read, if you go to the Old Testament, you've got King David, you're like, okay, if I were to take a snapshot of his life for a year, I would think he's not a believer. Uh, adultery and uh, cover up and kill a guy, uh, it doesn't sound like a believer. It doesn't seem like quick repentance. Seems like at least a year of rebellion to where God has to send a prophet to rebuke him. If you just looked at, at Peter on the day of the crucifixion, you might say, is he really a believer? He's denying his faith three different, he's committing the same sin three different times on the same day. So what Jesus prays, and what you should pray for yourself, I told you last week that John Piper prays two things for himself every day. Lord, keep me married. Lord, keep me a Christian. Third, we should pray this. We should pray that we would be joyful. Pray that you would be joyful. How should you endure? Grudgingly and grouchy? No. There should, the, the mark of a Christian after love and humility is joy. And here's what he says. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that's the word of God, that they may have my joy. Is there anyone more joyful than Jesus? You know, you, people take these pictures of Jesus or, or draw these pictures of Jesus. He always looks so serious and so somber. And, and he was a man of sorrows and there was many serious moments. But one of the most confusing passages to theologians is the fact that children wanted to hang out with Jesus. I don't get that. It's like because he was because he was a joyful guy. Jesus was the kind of guy that children came up to, and he said, "Let the children come to me." Jesus had a deep joy, and here's what he's saying: that when you are a Christian, you get my joy. Here's what he's saying: when you're a Christian, you get new affections. We talk about this here because we want people to understand how supernatural Christianity is. It's not hey, here. Read the Bible and pray some, and give some money. And feel guilty all the time, you know? 
That's what people think Christianity is. Christianity is like, actually, what if you had the same affections as Jesus Christ did? And what if that completely transformed and changed your mind? Because your affections, in some sense, are the deepest thing about you. What you love and what you hate, you can't control. You wish you did. Right? You're like, why do I love him? <laughs> Oops. Uh, you know? um, right? There are things that you love that you wish you hated. There are things that you hate that you wish you loved. And what Christ does is he comes and he changes your emotions and he changes your affections. And here's what he says. These things I speak in the world that they ha may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. It's a joy that's not based on your circumstances. Right? Some of you, you have joy until you see somebody you don't like having fun on Facebook and then you get bitter. And then you do the most Christian thing possible. You defriend them, okay? <laughs> Which is a great picture of I've forgiven them and moved on. Yeah. Um, but we, we struggle with this, right? And your life, in many cases, is going to be a struggle and a fight for where are you going to find joy? And Jesus says, what I want to do is I want to transform your joy so that you find it in me, so that you can have a joy even in the midst of bad circumstances. Do you see that? He goes, the world's going to hate you. And you can still be joyful. Some of you, it's like somebody says something, your joy's gone. It's like the test of a person is like, how, how big is your joy? And, and how little of a thing can destroy it? Some of you, your spouse says something, your kids do something, your day gets mismatched, and all of your joy is gone because all of it was in your circumstances. And so he says, pray for joy because one of the things that religious people are grouchy, they're grumpy. They're always competing and comparing and trying to keep up. They're always trying to be about the external, not the internal, so they can't have any joy. He's saying, I want you to have joy. I wish I had more time to talk about that, but the next thing he says is this. He says that we should pray to live sent. To live sent. I want to focus on this. That Jesus is always thinking about mission. He's always building into and baking into his prayers mission, because otherwise, what happens is Christians get together and they pray about themselves, and they pray about their family, and they pray about their church. And they may be biblical prayers, they may be uh, good prayers, but they're basically, hey, Lord, can you, they're a Christian version of, hey, can you bless me and keep me and make my life more easy? Whereas if you start praying, Lord, get me ready for your next big decision. Lord, get me ready for the, what you have next. Get me ready to share the gospel with my neighbors, with my coworkers, with my classmates. When you start looking at Thanksgiving and saying, Lord, get me ready to share with my mother-in-law, you're like, I gotta pray. <laughs> So let me show you this. It's right here. Here's what he says. Verse 15. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world. Some of you have been praying that God would take you out of the world. Stop it. That is not a biblical prayer. Some of you are like, I'm going to read the Left Behind series again. Okay, is the rapture happening anytime soon? Stop doing that. That is an unbiblical and unhelpful prayer. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Don't pray that way. But that you keep them from the evil one. It's both a command to be not of the world and to be in the world. They're both biblical commands. The full force of both, do not be of the world, but be in the world, are both 100% true. He says this, verse 16. Uh, they are not of the world. And then he, it's like, well, what does that mean? He goes, just as I'm not of the world. Jesus Christ is the model of what it looks like to be in the world, but not of the world. This is why every faithful Christian is reading the four gospels saying, teach me. This is why Jesus was so strange and he was so confusing to so many people. Jesus was so hard on the religious. 
but so gracious to the rebellious. And here's what he says, verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now you have to understand, just talk for a second, what the world is. Because world is like, you know, it's like the word ball. If I said, you know, I have a ball, that's one of my, you know, I'm talking about a ball, I have my hand, you know. Um, man, we had a ball. Well, you know, we had a lot of fun. I went to the ball. And I'm talking about an event, right? You can use a word, and it can mean different things depending on its context. Well, the word world means three things in the Bible. It means universe, people, or value system. So when you read world, you've got to go, what is he talking about? So in John 1, when it says that he created the world, that he's talking about the universe. In 1 John 2, when it says do not love the world, it's talking about the value system of the world. And in John 3.16, when it said God so loved the world, it's talking about the people of the world. And so what he's saying is, he's saying, I don't want to take you away from the people of the world, I want to take you away from the value system of the world. And we've said this before here, but that's the great challenge. The great challenge for Christians is, we want to be away from the people of the world, but we love the value system of the world. And so he, he continues on here. And there really are two extremes that Jesus wants us to avoid. He wants us to avoid building a wall or being a mirror. Right? What do you do when you build a wall? Uh, I need to be different and completely separate. We do need to be different, but completely separate from the world. Right? I can only listen to K-Love. My favorite movie is Courageous. All right? And and the only time I go out to eat is to Chick-fil-A. And that makes me unique. (laughs) That that would be subculture. Okay? Or there's anti-culture, right? Where that would be more of the example of um, the Amish, where you completely separate yourself from culture. Not a biblical idea. That would be building a, a wall. Uh, another way is building a mirror, and that's not helpful. Building a mirror is, uh, yeah, you believe that, so do we. Yeah, my life looks no different, right? This is why, by the way, and I don't mean to pick on the theologically liberal churches, but th- this is what they have done. The th- theologically liberal churches have said, well, we're just going to believe exactly what the world believes. And that's why there's not one theologically liberal church in the world growing. That's why one scholar says that theologically liberal denominations have roughly 23 Easter's left. Because when you're no different than the world, when you don't hold to the authority of Scripture, when you try to be over the Word instead of under the Word, you actually have nothing to say to the world. So, so some of you, you're building a wall. Others of you, you're being a mirror. Nobody knows you're a Christian except for Jesus. Right? It's like it's the last thing that your coworkers find out. It's the last thing that your neighbors find out. Nobody knows it. Now, I unfortunately don't have that privilege, okay, being a pastor. And my dad, I love my dad, but my, and my dad is so proud of me that we're, we're playing golf, and every time my dad would introduce me to the caddy or to whatever, he'd go, this is my son. He's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm like, Dad! Can you just say pastor? Can you say I work in the church world? Can you say something cool like spiritual leadership? I mean, do you, do you have to say a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, so... Uh, so pray for me. Okay, um, and, and so we, we, we are called to be sent into the world. The prayer is, Lord, get me ready for what you have for me next. Finally, pray that you would be holy. Pray that you would be holy. Verse 11, he says this. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. I told you last week he, he calls God Father all the time. Here he says, Holy Father. Um, as it goes on, he'll say a different title in front of uh, the word father next time, but um, 
he gives God an attribute connected to Father. And now it would be no surprise, right, if we talked about last year or last week, if we are the children of God, then we would want to be like our dad. And so the motivation to be holy is because our heavenly Father is holy. And this is why, drop down to verse 17, he says this. Sanctify them, that means to make holy. That means to be the godliest version of yourself. That means to be more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctify means. He says, sanctify them, and there's one way it primarily happens, in the truth. Now what is the truth? Truth is not relative. That's what you're gonna be taught in your culture today. Truth is not relative. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is like math, it never changes. Two plus two always has been four, two plus two always will be four. Truth is like math, it never changes. And he says this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Well, that's great. Then he says, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Then verse 19, and for their sake, I, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. See, a lot of times people go, um, you know, I don't believe in truth. Everybody believes in truth. If you've ever gotten angry, you believe in the truth. If you've ever thought there's a right way to do something, you've believed in the truth. And what you need to realize is the fight of your Christian life is to either believe the truth or believe lies. Right? This is what we see with our parents, Adam and Eve, way back in the garden. Remember? Uh, they show up and, and, and the serpent tells them the three lies that, 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 that Satan still tells us today and that still hinder us from being holy or as holy as we could be, or as like Christ as we could be. Here's the three lies. You've heard them. Um, God's word isn't true. Right? Isn't that what he said? Uh, did God really say? Uh, come on, your culture is saying something completely different about sexuality and gender. I mean, come on, there really can't be one way. Hell can't be a real place. Forever's a long time. Somebody else can't pay for your sins in your place. But you'll be taught a lie. The second lie is that God is somehow holding out on you. And that is, that's where the power, I think, of the lie comes. And think about it. That's what the, the serpent said to them, right? He said, no, no, God knows that the day that you eat of the tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God, they already knew good and evil. He, he said, don't eat of the tree. That would be evil. They already knew good and evil. See, what happens in your life is, yeah, you know, if you really want to be satisfied sexually, you need to look at this. I know what God has said about food and drink, but actually just eat too much and drink too much. It could be any area of life, and he begins to say, God's holding out for you. Do what the world said. Basically, here's what he says. You will be miserable if your life was biblical. And that's not true. But then the third one, and I think this is the power, the power that allows somebody to disobey, is the third thing he says is there will be no consequences and nobody will find out. Whew. Right? You will surely not die. Those are all three lies. And you have to understand that this week, maybe tonight, you're going to experience those three lies in whatever, and you know the area already. The Lord's already been speaking it to your life as we're talking about it. In that area of your life, you're going to be believing those lies. So what does it mean to be holy? It means, here's what holiness means. Here's the definition of holiness. To be set apart for God's purposes. It doesn't mean, you know, be very quiet and keep your hands together like this and mumble, you know, whatever. 
To be holy means that my life is set apart for God's purposes. And so what you need to do is you go, okay, what does it look like for my life to be set apart for God's purposes? What does it look like for my finances to be set apart for God's purposes? It means that wisdom and generosity would define it. It means that I would give, give first, save second to be wise, live off the rest to teach myself contentment. What would it look like for my college years to be set aside for God's purposes? Not to follow the fool's parade to get drunk and break a bunch of commandments. Which is how most people re- spend and then regret their college years and then spend the rest of their time trying to not struggle with the same things they started doing when they were in college. What if my singleness was set aside for God's purposes? What if I was set apart for God's purposes? That I wasn't using it to simply discover myself and be selfish and make it more difficult for me to connect my life to somebody else's. What if I was more concerned with becoming the type of person the person I'm looking for is looking for? What if that's how I spend my single years? And we could go on and on and on and on. Now, how does this happen? It happens through truth. Now, truth is very hard to handle. Nietzsche said, and I've quoted him before, but Nietzsche said that the test of a man's character is how much truth he can tolerate. Some of you, your wife tries to tell you something, you can't even handle it. Some of you, people have confronted you in an area of sin in your life and showed you an inconsistency and brought God's word to you in any type of, uh, of kind of clear, palatable way, and you literally can't handle it. Because when, when God's word comes to you in truth, it says, you have to change. Truth doesn't change, unfortunately. And the worst parts of you need to die and burn off. And that's incredibly painful. No wonder nobody does it. No wonder they start entire institutes and entire denominations to say the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Because if it means what it says, it requires me to repent. And our only hope to do that is the grace of God. And that's why, look what Jesus says in verse 19. I want you to see this. Verse 19, Jesus says this, and for their sake I consecrate myself. What does that mean? that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus is gonna say, look, I'm gonna finish praying this prayer and then I've gotta go do something. Some of you, by the way, you're using prayer as an excuse. You need to stop praying about certain things and you just need to do them. God's word has been super clear. You don't need to pray about it anymore. And I don't mean that to be irreverent. You've prayed about it enough, it's time to do something about it. And what Jesus said is, I'm done praying about this. He's going to pray for them. And then he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to do everything that they need. He prayed that they obey. Guess what he does? He obeys, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He prays that they would endure and be joyful. And what does it say in, in Hebrews 12? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's going to pray that they're going to live sent. He is going to cross the cross to do the most missional event in human history. And then he prays that they would be holy. 
And they're not going to be able to do this by themselves. They're only going to be able to do this because of what he has already done for them. Here's the encouragement. Jesus Christ, this is not the last time Jesus prays. It is the last time he prays a long prayer recorded in the Gospels. But we're told several different places, 1 John chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 7, Romans chapter 8, among other places, we're told that Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus Christ is currently doing, he is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for every believer. And what did he say to, what did he say to Peter when, Peter was going, when he knew Peter was going to fail and fall? He says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Let's join Jesus Christ in his prayer for the church. Lord, there is much that we have to pray about. I pray that we would be a church that prays with one another. We need to be praying with each other and for each other. We need to be looking around and going, what brother and what sister needs me to put my arm around them and pray with them and pray for them? Lord, we want to have the priorities and the prayers in the heart of you. Lord, I pray that our church would be an obedient church. We'd keep your word. Lord, I pray that we would endure. Who knows what we have ahead? Lord, I pray that we would do it joyfully. Now, we're just not enduring just to do it, but because we, we get to. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that are set apart and living sent. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.